Um, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14 through 23. <clears throat> Before I pray and read, I, 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 I need to say something about a verse in this passage so there's not added confusion. Um, and we'll cover it as we get into the message. So if you have the King James, New King James, New American Standard, you won't notice a problem. If you have any other translation, you might miss something in verse 16. And so I'll explain it later. So if you get lost in the middle, that's just, you'll catch up, you know, or you're behind really fast and just skip ahead, you know, or no, no, no. What will happen is if you're not in those, just wait and then we'll get there. (laughs) uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us today as we navigate this uh, continuing story with the Pharisees and the, the washing of the hands and the man, man-made traditions that we covered last week. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the necessity that we have of, of really a spiritual heart transplant, uh, that we don't fix ourselves through externals, we don't uh, fix ourselves by, by trying to, to play the part, but Lord, we need to be transformed from the inside out, and you make this available through Christ. Uh, we thank you that... Uh, his work on the cross was sufficient for us, uh, Lord, that he was our substitute, and that through uh, trusting in him, uh, we can have new life. That uh, as Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, that we, our lives have been exchanged, the old has been done away with, and the new has come. And so, Father, we, um, we ask that you would help us to understand this with clarity today, and that we would live it out in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 7, verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that which defiles the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We ask that you would guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, t- today's story, this passage, it's, it's, it's a continuation from last week. Last week, we, uh, the Pharisees and scribes had, had uh, come to the Galilee region. They'd heard about Jesus. And um, while they were there... Um, we, we know that their purpose from Mark chapter 3, verse 6, 
They were, they were there seeking to accuse Jesus. They were seeking to condemn him. Ultimately, um, they wanted to execute him. And so now they've come. They've, they're, so, they're beginning to, to plot out their strategy. And the first thing that they, they discover is that some of the disciples, now we don't know if this was uh, that they saw some of them in part doing this, or they saw some of the whole doing this, uh, doesn't really matter. But, but they, they didn't go through a, a ritual of washing their hands uh, during a meal. This had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with religion. And um, they, they address Jesus in that way. And they say, why don't your guys uphold the traditions of the elders? And through the story, Jesus goes against them very harshly. And he says, well, what you guys accuse them of, you're very good at manipulating the word of God or ignoring the word of God for the sake of, of upholding man-made tradition. And he gives them one example that was sort of right at the jugular vein. He shows, you know, the fifth commandment says to honor your father or mother. A few verses later, it says, if you speak harshly against your mother or dad, then you're to be put to death. And you guys have this whole this issue of Corbin where you can effectively take all of your possessions and you can take them off the market and say they've been dedicated to God. You can use them for the rest of your lives and you can neglect your very parent uh, who has a need for the sake of religion. And this is not in the Bible. Um, we see from the, the Pharisees, um, I, I love this quote by A.W. Towser. He says, a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself, but a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. And, and, and so Jesus basically confronts their harshness and they're, they're missing the whole spirit of the law. And they were actually profiting significantly off of the things that they were teaching. And so as we enter into Mark, uh, we, we know that the parallel passage of the story is over in Matthew chapter 15. I'm not going to go there so much right now. But I, well, actually, I am, but you don't have to go there. Um, sort of in between these two stories, it's the same story, but they, it's just kind of like part one with the Pharisees. Then we're going into part two, dealing with the crowd of onlookers. And then from that crowd, they're going to move into a house. And then Jesus is going to address the disciples, all connected to the same story. But Matthew uh, records an account sort of in between the transition. And I'll read it to you. Uh, in verse 12 of Matthew 15, we read, Then the disciples came to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And so after Jesus confronts them on their hypocrisy and their uh, ignoring of the law, they kind of go to him and say, Hey, Jesus, you know, you really offended these guys. And, and it's kind of important for us to understand, like the Pharisees were, were respected amongst the people. They Mark tells us that all, all of them did these traditions. It wasn't like they were the obscure group that everybody hated. This is, these are respected men. And, and they're like, Jesus, you kind of really upset the, the big dogs from Jerusalem. They're, they're offended. And then Jesus answered and he said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides, blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. He says, you know, everything that they've added to the scriptures, my father's going to take out and he's going to rip it out. And he, he points him to the scriptures. And this, this is where we pick up today's story. And so we go into verse 
14, and we're told that after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, so, so I imagine when the Pharisees and scribes came, there was already a big crowd. Um, Jesus is confronted by these big dogs that everybody was afraid of. And, and so this big scene sort of unfolds. Jesus basically goes to Adam toe-to-toe, and he, he, he wins the argument, and they kind of move aside. But now he brings the crowd to kind of explain to them, like, listen, people, you've been following these guys, but they're not sound teachers. They're not honoring the word of God. They're, they're actually teaching you all backwards. And so he begins saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. He's like, what? What I'm about to teach you and what I'm explaining has been the plan all, of al- all along from the very beginning. And they've manipulated and, and distorted the word of God. They've distorted the teaching. That They're not uh, sharing what God has been teaching from the very beginning. And, and the issue at hand really is a question that we, uh, I think we hear all the time today. We, uh, you know, the question, is man basically good or basically evil? And I think our society will tell us that man is basically good, um, that you're born good, and it's over you know, a series of events, and things happen in your life, and that sort of thing, that, that you, if you become a bad person, it's because of these external things that sort of corrupted this, this beautiful little baby that started so good. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that you, you, you sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin in and from Adam and Eve, that sin passed down genetically from generation to generation that you were born totally corrupt, totally sinful, totally apart from God. And so Jesus is, is, is this is a Barclay. Uh, he says this is the most revolutionary passage in the whole of the New Testament because it runs counter to everything that they understood the Pharisees had built up the system of religion and they'd said, if you do all of this stuff, then you're good with God. If you read the story of the Apostle Paul's life and his journey of, of I won't say discovering Christ, Christ grabbing him by the, the neck and saying, hey buddy, I'd like to meet you. And if you read, I think it's in Philippians 2, where Paul talks about his pedigree and he says, you know, according to the law, I was blameless. Like I, he says with a straight face, Before I encountered Christ, I actually thought I was perfect. I thought I was without sin. And then when I encountered the Messiah, the reality of who I am and my sinfulness came bubbling to the surface and I I knew that all of that stuff was garbage. He actually says dung. I was making it sound nicer. And so in verse 15, we pick, and and so he's addressing the crowd. And he says, there is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him. So, so he, anything, uh, religious foods, kosher foods, all of these things that the Jews prided themselves on, which separated them from the world around them. He says none of, he, he talks, in this case, he's probably talking more about non-kosher foods, that if you eat this stuff, it's not going to contaminate you. But the exact opposite of what he's just dealing with, going through this religious ceremony, uh, I forget who it was that t- said that, uh, that this hand washing was the equivalent of a baptism ceremony before, during, and after the meal. And he, that stuff doesn't make you clean. And so he says, Not, nothing from the outside that you put in is going to defile you. 
But the things which proceed out of the man is that which defiles the man, that you're, you're dirty and you're sinful because at your core, you're a sinner. Like, and this is all of us. I'm not like ripping on all of you. Like, we, we have a real problem. This is where I have to deal with verse 16. Um, But so at the end of verse 15, just before I get to verse 16, uh, verse 15 kind of concludes his dealing with the crowds. And then the story we're going to see in verse 17 that they're going to move inside of of a building. And he's going to continue the teaching that we're going to pick up according to the apostles. But now verse 16, this is one of those that I like. You know, Scott, during the announcement, says he didn't know how far to go. This is like one of those that I've had slides of stuff. I'm like, ah, that's too much. Um, But verse 16, we have to deal with. Um, If anyone has ears to hear, let let them hear. Um, This is critical, especially as we get to Mark. Mark is one of those books that I've I've kind of not jumped into because of some of the problems with it, especially towards the end depending on what translation you read. So I, I have to share about textual criticism with you all, which sounds fascinating. Um, well, it actually is to me. I'm, I'm trying to anticipate how you all feel about textual cr- criticism. Um, so, so like I said earlier, if you have the King James Version, New King James Version, um, the, the text will just be there. Uh, verse 16 will just be there. That probably you have a modern publication of it, which, which will have, it should have a, a footnote of some sort sort of indicating that there's, there, there's some problems with this, this verse. Um, if you're reading out of the New American Standard, which I am reading at, there'll be brackets. Now, a bracket is not a parenthesis. A bracket is like a straight line like this with the little 90-degree curves in it, a bracket. And because we have, a, we have a parentheses coming up in two, so I'm not, this doesn't apply to parentheses. This, this applies to brackets within the New American Standard. Um, if you have any of the other translations, um, you'll notice that it just moves from verse 15 straight to verse 17. I believe rightly so. Um, so. So the reason, this is how I have to like... I'm like giving myself like two minutes to explain this to y'all without going into an hour lecture about it. Um, so first off, textual criticism is a term that we use. Um, th- this has nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, well, I mean, it does, but it's, it has to do with ancient literature. Uh, when we use the word criticism, it's not, uh, this isn't like non-believers who are just attacking the text. This has to do with scholars who research ancient texts, and they compare, contrast, and, and they uh, sort of validate ones that they are certain about. They, they have question marks about some, and then there are some that say this probably doesn't belong in there. And that's for every, uh, every ancient manuscript. We're not just talking the Bible. And so to kind of... See, this is the one slide I removed that I should have. So let's imagine, very beginning, there was Mark who Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. And it's believed that that Peter was conveying to Mark the things to write. And so at one point, Mark wrote out the gospel of Mark, the original copy. 
And then that, that letter began to circulate. And during that era, when it would circulate to a church, Mark's original, the autograph is what we would call that, um, there would be some scribes. Uh, these guys are meticulous. And, and so the scribes would then, at church number one, they would take Mark's document and they would meticulously copy the document. And then Mark's letter would then circulate to the next church where another scribe would then copy the original letter. And then that would make all of its rounds. So, so from the first set of rounds of the original letter, now you have, let's just say, 10 different copies, because I'm not going to be able to do the math just without notes, and I didn't write this down because I didn't want to go too far. So then from the copies, so then somebody else takes the copy that was made, and then they made a note of the copy, and then like 10 copies get made of the copy. And then from each of those copies, another 10 copies, and then you can see exponentially that many, many transcripts were made. Um, we do not have the originals. The originals are gone for all, for all of the New Testament, um, which is not a problem. Um, so, so I do have a handout for those of you that actually, for the three of you that really care about it, it's in your bulletin. <laughs> it's in the bulletin. So let's, let's start referring to these copies as sort of like we have the children, the grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren, the great-great-great-grandchildren. As you get further away, the numbers dramatically increase, right? Um, there are basically three sources of the, of the New Testament that we have, the Greek New Testament. Um, it's, it's, in your, it's in your handout. And you can read that on your own. But what I'll refer- reference is, is, so first you have the Texas Receptus. This is where the King James and New King James came from. They, uh, they collected all of the, um, the, the pieces of, of the transcripts that they had, the copies of like probably, um, you know, let's just don't take my great-great-grandchildren to extreme. But let's just say they have the great to like the fourth generation. They... They have the pool of those transcripts that are from the great, 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 great grandchildren. And so then they created the text. That's where the King James and the New King James come from. Then um, time kind of marches on, and then you have the majority text, and there's the same thing from multiple generations. And you have just a lot of fragments and whole copies of, of the Greek New Testament. We're talking exclusively about the Greek New Testament. We're not talking about the Old Testament. And then, um, then where the New American Standard and the modern translations, uh, like outside of the King James and New King James, basically there was a discovery in Alexander, Virgi- Alexandria, Virginia, that had, not Virginia, <laughs> Egypt. Um, and so... Later, after the King James and all of these, the, the, the King James version was, was created, there was a discovery because there was a huge library in Alexandria. And because of the weather environments of the desert, they, they made this huge discovery of all of these the texts of, of the Greek New Testament that were much, much older. So instead of being like the great, 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 great grandchildren of the copies, we're talking about like, the great-grandchildren. So they're much closer to the original, the pinning, um, but there's less in quantity. 
And so then there are guys with, and women with very thick glasses. This is a negative statement. I realize I'm, I'm picking on these people. But they painstakingly go through all of the manuscripts. I mean, we're talking hundreds. There's, there's far more historical evidence for the New Testament writings than we even have for George Washington of our country, which is only a couple hundred years old. Like, it's, it's, it's overwhelming how many they have all around the world. And so, as we come to verse 16, as we come to the end of Mark, what they've discovered is in the very earliest manuscripts, these ones that were discovered, verse 16 wasn't in them. And then as they look at the copies, what likely happened is those scribes, the scribe who's writing out a copy of Mark, at one point, the guy, the, the, the guy who was doing it, he put a little note on the side. Um, where are we at? Verse 16. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So he, may, he must have put a little footnote on the side, like cross-referencing to another place. And, and so then the next guy that copied it just inserted that in there, not understanding his notes. And so you have a, vein, like a whole vein of these, these. They can trace them. And they go, oh, all of a sudden it got added in, follows down that way. But then the cousin of that same one doesn't have it. And... So it's probably more, like I, like I could talk about this for a long time. Um, so, 99.99999% of this, like when you come to this, it doesn't affect anything theologically. It doesn't affect anything that's here. Um, you can reference this, I believe, verse 16. You could tie it to um, basically... Basically, verse 14, he called the crowd to say some important stuff to him. Um, you can reference it. And so all the scholars say, you know what? In Matthew's account of this story, Matthew, who uses this phrase all the time, like he used it all the time. Um, uh, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That was, like a, that was like an earmark of Matthew's writing. Matthew doesn't include it here. So they're like, we don't think this exists. And so in dealing with this, the, the, the new King James and the King James just didn't really say anything because they weren't aware of the new discoveries, right? So when they first penned it, they, they weren't aware of it. So now we have modern versions of, of the King James or new King James versions that I'm almost certain that you have a footnote there that will say early MSS. So early manuscripts don't have this in there. If you're reading out of like the NIV, ESV, RSV, any other modern translation that are all good, you'll you'll go from verse 15 to 16 and there'll be a footnote. And then in the, in, in the sideline, it'll say some later manuscripts include this verse. Um, this is particularly important as we get to the end of Mark, which you'll see when we get there because I've been dreading it. Um, so I'm just going to give you like a, this is like an introduction to, to uh, textual criticism. I think the two points in all of this that I want you all to know, number one, when you see those brackets or a footnote, it's not like the things that drive me crazy are individuals, first off, within the body of Christ who say, oh, they just took away the word of God. It's like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. 
That's not what happened. And then outside of Christianity, you'll have skeptics who say you can't trust the, the Bible because of these things. And so the first thing that I want to point out is when you see these brackets or an absent verse, the number, the number one thing is the integrity of Christian scholarship. The, the, the integrity of Christian scholarship is second to none. Like it, it is overwhelming the research and effort that these brainiacs around all of the world, um, what they go through to make sure that what we have is the word of God in full assurance before us. Uh, Number two, kind of on that part, is the reliability of the scriptures. Um, It's amazing to me how God has preserved his word. Um, the The way he's done it it, it has been done in a way that, that I want to say it is, it is impossible to, to distort or recreate what was said in the New Testament. Um, we have these manuscripts all around the world. And if there was a guy a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago... Um, 50 years ago that wanted to like take some you know papyrus and like make some greek and like rub it out burn the edges so it looks old rub it in his hand go out in the middle of the desert dig a hole and then put the copy there to make it say that hey gunner's the best pastor in the whole wide world and he's going to come around and we all know that's not true and but but so you would get something that would try to distort the truth of the word of god and they say this is ridiculous because we have hundreds of thousands of manuscripts from that. There is no way that this aligns with, with the manuscripts we have. Um, also, this system has removed the originals because I believe that God knew that if, can you imagine if we had the original copy, how much money would be made by some group that owned it to say, come see this, come look at it. Um, so, so that's been removed, and they still do that with the ones that are the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Um, so I'll move on. But I do want you guys to understand that the Bibles that you hold in your hands of all of the major translations are excellent translations. Their Christian scholarship has integrity second to none. And so they put the brackets. They let us know, like, hey, there's a lot of different manuscripts, and this, this, this is the problem one. If it's in a bracket, they're saying that scholars across the board don't believe that it should be there. Um, the, pro- the reality is, is that the, the, the reality is why this New American Standard probably includes it is because of, of the weight and the reputation of the King James Version and the New King James Version. And so to keep, keep the, the system flowing is why they would include that in there. Um, for those of you that have a translation that's not there, I'll never forget when Ann and I were first married, the guy was not a pastor, but the guy was a total jerk and didn't think it through. And he's like, who here has the NIV? And it's in all, all of them. And so Anna's like, I do, I do. Will you please get up here and read Acts, whatever? She'll probably tell you exactly the verse it was. And she's like, sure, I'd be happy to get up and read the verse. Huh, it's not there. He's like, ah, I'm just showing you how bad the NIV is. And it's like, dude, like, 
So it was basically like that. She was humiliated. And it's like he didn't know what he was talking about. The translations you hold are very, very, very good. Um, To the point that with, like, I've staked my life, my soul, on on the words that we have before us are the word of God. So with that, we can go to verse 16. So to the three of you that very much love this stuff, you're welcome. To the rest of you, we can move on. And it is important. So we come to verse 17. And we we're told that when he left the crowd and he entered into the house, so we believe that we're in Capernaum, and that he, you know, this could be Peter's mother-in-law's house, this could be their home base, we just don't, we just don't know, but he, he entered a house. So, so now the crowds are being reduced, and he's at a smaller number, and his, quest, his disciples begin questioning him about the parable. And so he leaves the house, he, enters, he leaves the crowd, he enters the house. Now his disciples are like, what did that parable mean? And most of us are like, what parable are you talking about? And so it's not like a true parable. Like it's more they were referring to it as a parable, this idea, like what do you mean that nothing can defile you from the outside, but it's from the inside that defiles you? That doesn't, this is revolutionary. How, how could that be? Because our whole existence is about staying separate from the Gentile world, remain kosher, doing things that, that separate us from the world so that we stand apart from, like that we're, we're set apart wholly for God. And Jesus looks at me and he says, are you guys so thick-headed that you don't get it? That's not what he said. He said, are, he said, are you so lacking in understanding also? But it means hard-headed. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the out, outside cannot defile him? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and literally goes to the latrine. And so the American, like the English versions, soften it a little bit. But it, it literally says, "What you eat passes through the intestinal tract, goes into the potty." Pretty simple. He says it doesn't go into the heart. Now the the heart, we're not talking about the the circulatory system where the I mean, we kind of are. We're, I mean, he's saying that the digestive system is one track and the cardiovascular track is another track, but he's not talking about the blood flowing through your veins. He's, he's speaking about the innermost being of who you are, that the water that is there is contaminated, and, and he's going to build his case about this. Um, now, there's a, there's a, there's a parenthesis. This is another little detour that Gunnar gets to make. Now, this is a parenthesis. This is not a bracket. So this has nothing to do with textual criticism. But what Mark writes is, thus he declared all foods clean, which this will lead to all sorts of arguments and discussions. And what does that mean? Like, um, and instead of wrapping up you guys all around the axle about the debates that happen in the theological world about this statement... I'm just going to tell you what I believe about this. So we know that the Gospel of Mark is influenced by Peter. We, we know historically that Peter, on this issue of clean food and unclean food, that this was a real struggle for Peter. As we read the New Testament, so today's story happened broadly between... Um, 29 and 32 AD. Like, let's just give it a three-year window. So this is Jesus' 
uh, life and ministry before the cross. Um, the, the stories that we have before us are being, it's, it's a historical narrative. So Peter is feeding information to Mark about the things that happened um, during Jesus' earthly ministry. But the story was penned um, about 30 years later. It's believed that the penning of Mark happened in AD 65. Now, in between that story, um, we would go to Acts chapter 10. I'm not going to go there today for time's sake, but I'm going to reference it, and, and you can look at the story yourself. The story of Cornelius' conversion happened in about A.D. 40. So about 10 years after this story, the church would be growing. Cornelius uh, would be up at Caesarea. He would have a vision to say, hey, go down to this house. Go down to Joppa. There's a guy named Peter there. Send your men to get him and bring them back. Um, and, and so while he's doing that, Peter's sun tanning or something on the roof. Of Joppa. I mean, it's, it's Club Med. It's beautiful. And so he's up there at the ru- on the roof. He's hungry. It's about lunchtime. He has this dream. And this like sheet from heaven comes down. And there's club sandwiches with bacon and ham and cheese and lobster and like all of the amazing non-kosher food is in this sheet and, and he has this vision, and he's told, get up and eat all of this stuff. And he says, not me, never. No, nothing unclean has ever, ever, ever touched my lips. There's no way will I touch this. And, the, and basically, the vision says, no, all food is clean. They're, they're, the whole kosher laws, everything's done away with. Jesus lived under the law. He fulfilled the law. At the cross, everything changed. But there was a transition. And so this is one of those defining moments where Peter is starting to come to terms with like, like I grew up not eating bacon. Like to eat bacon, that would be to defile yourself. And I don't even, I don't even know how to, how to relate this like to us. It would be like going, like the closest thing I can think of is maybe if you went to like another part of the world and they ate dog food and they wanted to invite you over and they had Alpo canned food with extra juice in it. And they're trying to offer it to you. Now we would say, oh, it's gross. I can't, like, I can't bring myself to, to do this. You know, Anna's dad tells a story when they were in Spain, like they don't eat corn in Spain, like, the, like corn on the cob, that, the, the whole idea, like to eat a can of corn is like just disgusting. I love corn. And so Anna's dad's like, come on, guy, like just for me, we have a bowl of corn. And the guy eating his corn was like dry heaving, like trying to get it down. So, so this is like the struggle that Peter's having. It would continue to where, it, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. So in Galatians chapter 2, it, the Galatians is one of the earliest letters that was written. Um, it's, it's one of the earliest dating of the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing it. And we know that this issue with Peter and food was a huge deal for Peter. Like, He's there for this, time, this whole story that we're reading about when Jesus is first introducing this revolutionary thought while still remaining kosher and living under the law. Then Peter goes 10 years. He has this vision of the food. And then from that story, that was like the beginning of the Gentiles sort of being brought into the church. And then 
Paul is brought in, the, 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 the Jew of Jews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, his zeal according to the law, blameless, all this stuff about Paul. Now Paul and Peter had this bone of contention after all of this. And so in verse 11, so Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him, that's Paul, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And he continues to go on this, like how he and Peter had it out. He says, you know, Peter knows better. He knows that there's food can't contaminate you. And he'd eat with the Gentiles. But all of a sudden, the, the Jewish uh, the, the, the party of the circumcision, these Jews that weren't believers that were still trying to maintain the law and maintain the very things that Jesus is condemning in this passage, he suddenly says aloof, like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, sure, I'm going to hold kosher laws. So I'm Forget about what Jesus said. I want to fit in with you all. So when we come to Mark chapter 7 and, and verse, uh, whatever verse we're in, verse 19b, and we see this parent, the parenthetical statement, thus he declared all food clean. I think what this is, is, is Peter humbling himself before Mark as Mark is writing this and say, you know what? I've struggled with this. But when I go back to the story, he was beginning to show us that we're dirty from the inside out. And the food you eat, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't make you dirty. You're dirty from within. And me eating kosher food doesn't make me more clean than than a Gentile person who doesn't maintain it. So I think this is like a humble statement of Peter that's, that's beautiful within there. Um, and, and, and Jesus is going to, we're going to transition to sort of like the, the crux of it. So our, our house, you know, we've been like the Fredericks. We've been under construction for like a year. You know, like the flooring project that's been going on and on and on. I'm realizing that I started like last December and I'm still like have a good distance to go. But, but this summer we made some progress. You know, we had a little like mini bar thing and Anna wanted to get going. I'm like, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to work. If you feel like busting that thing out, you can bust that thing out. Like, so I came back to a big old hole and like she busted it out. She got it out. And, and then there's a big hole where all the pipes were there. And so then we had the drywall guy to come patch it all up. Well, first there was the plumber to push all the pipes behind the wall and then the drywall guy. And then when the drywall guy was done, he's like, this, you know, you got something back here. He's like, what are you doing with this space? I'm like, oh, we're going to build like a bookshelf. I'm just going to cover it all up. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, there's something behind your wall. And I don't know what it is. But it's like bleeding. And it won't stop. It's like a marker or a whole packet of markers is behind the wall. And like if you wipe it, it just continues to bleed out. And he's like, well, the right thing would be is to cut it out and to pull whatever's there out and then to repatch it. But you're just putting a bookshelf. So when you paint it, just slop on a lot of base coat, you know? Like, and I, and I, I halfway wasn't listening to him. And I halfway, like, I'm like, okay, there's a little thing here. We're going to slap something over there. Who cares? You know, like, Gunner has very, I'm not a professional me- uh, mechanic or <laughs> construction guy, you know? Like, level, flush, square, these things are, don't matter to me. Um, <laughs> And so then I get back, and I'm like, okay, time to put on the drywall, like, or the paint, you know, and I'm painting. I do one batch of the base coat, and it's like through the paint. It's like 
poltergeist like coming out. Like it's like whoa. And like let's just like do a really like get the brush. Really, uh, sorry, Joel, don't listen to me. I know he's going to criticize all my painting. <laughs> like, I, but it's like let's just like throw a batch there and let it sloop all down. And then even from that, now it's like colored paint is coming. I'm like this is weird. Like, Anna, get me the blow dryer. And so now I'm like blow drying, painting, slopping it up. I don't know what happened because we built something over it. So it's probably back there just like oozing out still. Um, the, the, the problem has not been resolved. And the reason I bring this up is because the Pharisees, what they're trying to do is they, what Jesus referred to them as your whitewashed tombs. You're covering up the problem. You're, going, you're attacking it from the external, but the problem is still within you. You, you might look like, uh, you know, uh, like a 70-year-old rental property that has a thousand coats of paint covering up the problem, but the problem still remains. And in verse 20, he continues and he says, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed these things, evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's, it's, it's not external things. The problem is, is that we each are utterly sinful. In our home, we have the saying that anger volcanoes aren't allowed. And I realize that with my like, little boys, that like, when something doesn't go right and there's like this explosion of anger, the problem is my little guys need new hearts. It's a sin issue. I have it. Like, I always joke, but it's like there's kind of uh, that, that time early in my Christian life when I, like, stub my toe or whatever the stubbing my toe was. I say stubbing my toe. I don't know if I literally stubbed my toe, but it was like something happened. And instead of, like, vulgarity coming out of me, it was like not. It was like suddenly the fountain of water within me was clean. And I remember the first time that happened, I didn't like swear. I was like, whoa, that was weird. Like, <laughs> like just strange. And so our ultimate problem is that within us, we have, we have this, this fountain that's flowing with contaminated water. The, the Bible makes it clear that man is not basically good. The Bible makes it clear that man is evil. And so, back to my bookshelf, the reality was if I really wanted to do it right, like I'm not making, like, like Daniel Fredericks was like, dude, I don't care you're covering it up, let's just cut it out, let's slap together a new thing, make it right. I'm like, nah, let's just put up like 17 layers of paint over it, make it go away. <laughs> Same is true for us. We, we, we go about trying to slap on paint on, on us. And we try to go about like we're all okay, but the, but the heart within us is... is is rotten. We can't fix it, so we try to cover it up. We try to make ourselves look more spiritual or more good. Maybe not even spiritual, but but, but we try to fix a longing within us. I, I, I know in my early life, 
like I wouldn't have said that my problem was my depravity, that I'm sinful, and this is creating all kinds of havoc in my life. I thought what I need to do is to start accomplishing some stuff. And as I accomplish some stuff, then my identity will be fixed, and then I'll have security with who I am. So I thought that was if I make it through Hell Week when they trade out that white shirt for a brown shirt, I'll feel better about myself. It's kind of silly because a white shirt feels, or a brown shirt feels the same as a white shirt. And it did, it did nothing for me. And so I thought, oh, to fix myself, all I need, this is a finished training. And then I'll get the trident that means I'm a Navy SEAL. And then I'll feel better. And I put that little cheap $5 thing from the Navy exchange on my chest and it's like, it says one more thing to keep straight. I don't feel any different. Like, and we do this with our vocation, our careers, the cars we drive, or like whatever. We try to fill our lives with insignificant things to try to cover up something that's broken within us. Ephesians 2.1 says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins, that you are dead. You're spiritually dead apart from God. You, you need... Uh, you know, like they say, oh, spirituality is just a crutch. It's like, oh, it's way worse than that. It's not a crutch. It's like life support. It's Gunner on his own is a very evil and wicked person. It's not just a crutch. It's everything. And Ephesians makes that very clear that you're like this fish floating down dead in water on the surface. And then Christ intervenes and gives you new life. Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3, this, this Pharisee, this, this religious leader, and he says, I don't understand the things that you're saying. And Jesus says, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like this whole, like, the phrase born again Christian. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian, or I was investigating it, and thinking about my old life, and, and um, I'm having a thought, and I'm trying to... There, when I was a kid, I was introduced to this crowd of adults. And there's like a joke in there somewhere, but one was uh, a really nice guy. He was a gay hairdresser, just to kind of put your, the picture into your mind. And then there was another guy, and then there was like the born-again Christian. And then there was like this whole group of adults and I remember going, like, born-again Christian, that's got to be, like, some sort of, like, different Christian. And then as I, like, navigated life and got older and then became a Christian and then, again, grappled with the whole, like, born-again Christian, the, the reality is, is there's no Christian apart from a born-again Christian. Like, that, like, to be a Christian means that you're born again. It, it was Jesus who said it. And Nicodemus had a hard time with this. He's like, how am I supposed to crawl into my mom's uterus and be born again? Like, how's this? And Jesus is like, oh, brother, like, you're the spiritual leader of Israel. Like this is this is the best you you're understanding. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. The scripture makes it clear what we're to walk away with. What I see from this story is if you're not a Christian, or you're unsure, or you think you are, but you haven't maybe gone through the like what, what the Bible says is that Jesus went to the cross and that he suffered and died on the cross and that the weight of the world's sin was placed upon him. And that he suffered and he died and on the third day he rose from the grave. 
And he appeared to many. There were many witnesses over the course of the next 40 or 50 days. And then he ascended into heaven. The Spirit came. All of these things happened that are documented in the Bible. And we're told that there's nothing that you can do to fix yourself. What we're told is that Jesus died on your behalf on the cross and that all you have to do is believe. And as you believe, we're told that the old is exchanged for the new. That you're redeemed, you're transformed. There's new life in Christ. And this whole passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's this beautiful passage that you have, after you've been transformed, you've been called to be his ambassador. Um, that we're the light of the world. And so as we close today, I, I would encourage you that if you've never given your life to Christ, to give your life to him. Trust in his work so that your lives would be exchanged. It's not adding a rabbit foot to your keychain, a little bit more luck. It's everything. It's this legal exchange, and then you're transformed, you're filled by the Spirit, you're sealed in the Spirit, and new life begins. And it, Some people, it happens overnight. Some of us, it takes years for the Spirit to retrain the, the many years of, of walking in the flesh that you have under your belt. But the hope is, is that Jesus has made it possible that we would get new hearts. And that the water within us, this, this, this water from Flint, Michigan, that flows through our hearts, suddenly is Avion water. <laughs> it's beautifully pure. And you don't do anything to get it other than to believe. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that has been revealed to us in this teaching. It's, it's hard for us to understand this spiritual exchange that happens with our souls simply by believing. It doesn't make any sense by our economy. It's not how anything works. You do stuff and you're rewarded. That's how we understand things. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to better understand grace, that we would understand that you work and operate distinctly from how we work and operate. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what Christ did on the cross on our behalf. I pray that you would help us um, to truly, fully trust in his work, that it was sufficient for us. If we've never believed, if we've never cross the line of faith, Lord, that you would help us to, to connect the dots, that we would humble ourselves before you and that you would do a work in our lives. Father, for those of us who have trusted and are new creatures, Father, I pray that you would help us to, um, to, to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've called us to. Um, so easily, So often, Lord, we have... We've just walked according to the flesh for so long that it's so easy to trip us up. And so, Father, I pray that you would humble us, Lord. Help us um, just to walk obediently with you. Lord, may we yield our lives to you that you could lead us and guide us in all the areas that we struggle with. Father, we thank you that you cleanse us from the inside out, not the outside in. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.